A reading from the book of Isaiah, chapter 64, starting with verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. As when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to help of those, you come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and, the, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look for us. Look on us, we pray. For we are all your people. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 1, starting with verse 3. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Gospel according to St. Mark. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away till all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task. 
and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone. Watch. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Good to be with you all on this first Sunday of Advent. It's good to see everybody this morning. Glad you're here. It was an interesting experience today as we gathered that you all got here early because of breakfast. And so it, we were still three or four minutes until we normally started, and everybody's kind of here and settled. And so I thought it was nice to have a reflective, peaceful moment before we begin. So if you ever want to get here early again, you are welcome to do that. <laughs> That's not normally our style, but it would be a great new trend for the new year. Okay, moving on. So welcome to the season of Advent, and welcome to a new church year. Now, if you are new to the church calendar, and I know a bunch of us are, this historic church calendar, many of us come from churches and traditions where we didn't really observe this, we didn't really celebrate this. So if you're new to the church calendar, the year of the church begins at Advent. So this is the first Sunday of a new year. So happy new year, everybody. Um, so we live into the season of anticipation and longing. Now, this gets a little confusing for us because everywhere around us right now in our world, everybody's celebrating the Christmas season, all right, or the holiday season, which even though it seems to start earlier and earlier, it kind of begins sometime after Thanksgiving. People start getting into this mode. It's characterized by holiday shopping. That's the main thing about the Christmas season. Christmas lights showing up on roofs. I put mine up this couple weeks ago. Trees in living rooms, holiday movies, peppermint-flavored drinks. Yeah, it's wonderful, isn't it? This form of the Christmas season, though, is interesting because the way it's celebrated culturally, it's always really been driven by commercial interests, by buying and selling. That's kind of how our world tends to work. In fact, if you look at our history of the United States, Americans didn't really celebrate Christmas at the beginning. It was a long time. It was the 1800s, well into the 1800s, before Americans started to even celebrate Christmas. In fact, you may not know that A Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens, right? was one of the reasons why the holiday came back. People started celebrating it again. It wasn't that people were celebrating Christmas and then Charles Dickens wrote this thing about their celebrations. It was, no, he reminded them of what Christmas was. And so then even Americans were like, maybe we should start celebrating that thing again. Now, it wasn't the Muppet version. You know, it was the original version. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> Muppet version helped, yeah. But largely, it was actually commercial interests that brought Christmas back to America in the 19th century. So our modern American observance of the season has always been centered on buying, right? It's always been about buying, purchasing, all that stuff. Now, hear me out. I'm neither a Scrooge nor a fundamentalist. But Advent is a different thing from the Christmas season. It's different, okay? Now, a few years ago, uh, there's this wonderful author named Rever the Reverend Fleming Rutledge. She's an 80-something-year-old Episcopal priest, and she just wrote this phenomenal book on Advent. And many of us preachers read it and have just been captured by it. 
several years ago when she wrote this, we all just really wanted to emphasize Advent is different. Advent is different. And you're going to hear that today. I'm going to talk about that. But I do want to say <laughs> that some of the starkness of this softened during the pandemic for me. <laughs> Because I did not want to be that preacher that said, um, <laughs> that called people out for their uh, Christmas celebrations <laughs> during this time. So during the pandemic, we kind of just said, you know what, wherever we find joy in the season, it's wonderful and it's good. I also like that the culture retains, even if so much of it is based on buying, the culture retains some Christian sensibility in this month. And I think that's a good thing and a beautiful thing. But that being said, the Christmas season, Christmas season is not Advent. The Christmas season, I'm putting in quotation marks, the cultural celebration begins with flashing lights and doorbuster sales. Advent begins in the dark. Advent is about a broken world, a longing world standing on its tiptoes looking for signs of hope, straining to see light in the midst of darkness. Advent is about anticipation. And it's about anticipation of a few things. Anticipation of Christ's first coming, standing with Israel, longing for the Messiah, shouting, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Advent is also the anticipation of Christ's second coming. It's what we affirm in the creeds, that Christ is coming again. We are in a weary world, and we understand that God has come fully in Jesus, and yet we do not see his kingdom in fullness yet. We experience today profound darkness and brokenness. We need God's restorative judgment. And then Advent has a third dimension. So we look back on, on uh, his first coming. We look forward to his second coming. And we anticipate the work of God in our lives today. One of the things that we see throughout the scriptural story is the good news that God shows up. He is the God who shows up. He is the one who arrives. He desires to be with us. So therefore, there is a sense in which we are anticipating his work in our hearts here and now, in the sacraments, in the least of these, in surprising ways. We can sit back and anticipate the work of God in our midst today. So we sit in this season of Advent for four weeks, and then here's how the church calendar works. And it might be trippy to you if this is new to you. Then beginning Christmas Day, the church enters into the season of Christmas. So we have 12 days of Christmas. Yes, that's where the song comes from, the 12 days of Christmas. Because we have 12 days where we live into this feast, this reality of the incarnation of Christ stepping into our world. Now, if we're honest, this feels strange because the Christmas season has been, has been so shaped by consumerism so what our tendency is, is to hustle really, really hard and get all the shopping done and put up all the rec uh, decorations and then wait for the day. And then on the 26th, it's over. We crash <laughs> and we prepare to get back to normal life. But in the Christian calendar, we take 12 days to feast and to celebrate that God is with us. Now, this has nothing to do with the fact that my birthday happens to be the 26th, and so I get to feast on my birthday as a Christian thing. It's wonderful. <laughs> no, but uh, we take these 12 days. Advent is about anticipation. Christmas is about resting and celebrating. And if you look at the Bible, so much of the Bible is lived in Advent space. 
It's so much of the Christian life is lived in anticipation and longing. So much of the Bible is about anticipation and waiting for God, longing for God. In our Isaiah reading today, we see this longing in fullness. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. The prophet says the world needs a dramatic intervention, needs a world made right with God's presence. And the prophet says only God can do this. There's nothing that's ever happened in the world that could do what God can do by coming near to us. Now, for a person of faith like us, this is a necessary reminder. Every day we need to remember we need God. There's nothing else which can make us whole or right or good. There is no diet or exercise plan that will make us perfectly right. There is no book that we can read or program we can start which will put everything in order. Now, all those things can be wonderful things, but they are not the dramatic intervention or reorientation of the true and living God. Now, the religious community is not immune to this brokenness. It's not that the religious community can look back and say, yeah, the world is just so messed up and we're remaining pure ourselves. No, Israel shouts, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like filthy cloth. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. The reference to righteousness as filthy cloth isn't just like dirty rags that have been used to clean up dirt or mud or something, and so they need to be clean. No, the garments have become so polluted, deemed unfit for use for anything except to be burned up. This is what righteous deeds are worth if they're used to gain any kind of merit. Like if we think that we can use our righteous deeds to earn something, they're worthless. No, they're worse than worthless. They're polluted. They can't even be used. Even our good deeds in this world will fail. Maybe you've experienced this in your own life. Very rarely do many of us experience a good deed that is done purely. In our world, people often do good deeds in order to gain influence to gain favor that could be done in return for approval of others, to look good on Instagram, whatever it is. This is why we often do good deeds. One of the things, just being honest here, that so surprised me when I moved to Nashville was the sense in which everyone seemed to be looking to get something from someone else. Now, I know that since then, I know there's good, wonderful people in Nashville, but This was kind of an underlying sense. Nashville is a networking city for good, bad, ugly, all that represents. I met so many people who were so nice and kind, (laughs) but their niceness and kindness I found was in order to get something in return. I don't always blame that person. I think one of the things in our city particularly, but it's true throughout the world today, is there is a culture of scarcity, a fear of missing out, of there not being enough to go around. So we feel like we always have to get something from someone. So we live in a messy world where even our good deeds are, they often have selfishness attached to them or trying to get something. Does that mean that we shouldn't do good deeds if they're messy? Does that mean we should look at ourselves and go, ah, I've got a little bit of, a little bit of selfishness in this, so I just shouldn't do a good deed at all? No, not at all. But what this reminds us is they're signs that those good deeds in and of themselves are never enough. We need intervention. We need God. 
Fleming Rutledge writes about how churches often brag about ourselves. <laughs> That's a tendency. So she says, uh, quote, we're a friendly, welcoming, warm, inclusive, embracing, Bible-based, spirit-filled, Christ-centered fellowship doing all sorts of great things in our community. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Or at least pieces of it. But very rarely is a local congregation really all of those things. Perhaps, she says, we should try putting up a different kind of sign. This congregation is a bunch of sinners and hypocrites, misfits and meddlers, Pharisees and tax collectors, and all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Our reading today affirms there is no one who calls on your name or attempts to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the hand of our iniquity. The condition of Advent is that the world is in sin and death. So tis the season to be jolly. <laughs> now this is Advent. We bring our broken selves and our broken world to God. And yet, we also experience moments of grace, undeserved moments of mercy that peek through in the most unlikely places. Every once in a while, we do experience an act done for no other reason than self-giving love. Does that mean it's perfect? No. Does that mean that those good deeds somehow earn salvation? No, of course not. But they are signposts of God's grace, the God who always shows up. So why does God wait so long to return and make all things new? Why not just make everything right at the first Christmas? Or at least at the resurrection, right? Like, that's when everything should be new. Like, why is all there this, this, all this waiting? Well, I don't really know. But I do know that something happens in waiting. As we wait, sometimes all that we know is that there's this rumor, there's this hope, there's this expectation that he will return. And Christians are the people of the rumor. <laughs> We're the people of the whispers. For the people who strain to see the light, we've heard he's coming. We've heard that he's coming again and he's going to put things right. Again, from Rutledge, she says, the church's life in Advent is hidden with Christ until he comes again, which explains why so much of what we do in this night appears to be a failure, just as his life appeared to end in failure. I'll be honest with you, one of the things I have wrestled with in my life um, and as somebody who's in ministry and as a pastor, is the need, the seeming need, to see tangible earthly success as a validation of God's work in my life or in the world. But the reality, we're all learning together, and even as we know it, we still wrestle with it. The reality is our world is broken. Living for God will not necessarily cause you to get ahead in this world. Living for God will not necessarily make you richer or more successful or more attractive. Now, that doesn't mean rich and successful and attractive people aren't living for God, no. It just means the two are not correlated. In fact, when we live by the ethics of the kingdom, it often means sacrificing those things for a different goal. Notice that our passage doesn't end with the devastation of Israel. So they're longing, they're recognizing nobody does anything good. Our righteous deeds even are like filthy rags, but that's not where it ends. It ends with a word of trust. Yet you, Lord, are our father. You are the clay. We are the clay. You are the potter. 
We are all the work of your hand. I once heard someone say that all a potter needs to take a lump of clay or a pot that's been misshaped is warm water. I love this. It's kind of an image of baptism. When God forms us, he does so by taking us through the waters, constantly shaping us by our baptismal identity. And in the waiting, we become a people of hope, a people of expectation, a people who live in such a way that we anticipate the end result. And that leads us to what Jesus says in the gospel. He's preparing his disciples. And through this chapter, if you read this, Mark 19, Jesus has been describing this this coming time when the world will be dark. And he uses this harsh language. He says, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. This reading is urgent. And that's probably why we get it at the beginning of Advent. Because this is the season of anticipation of Christ's coming. And Christ's coming involves judgment, which judgment is a revealing. It's a showing light on something so that it might be healed. Jesus is likely pointing, and most scholars today believe, that Jesus is talking about this event that would happen in a generation. And it was likely the destruction of the Jerusalem temple which ended up happening in 70 AD. So within a generation, about 40 years after after Jesus, Jesus' earthly life, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. Now we might go, okay, what's the big deal about a building in Jerusalem being destroyed? How is that like the end of the world? Well, for the people of Israel at this time, that was the cataclysmic moment. The temple in Jerusalem was the center of everything. It was the center of their economic system. It was the symbol of their national pride. It was their entire religious identity. The temple was God with us. God lives here. It was the place where heaven and earth meet. It was a place of forgiveness and healing and community and restoration. And at a generation after Jesus died and rose again, Roman armies came through and decimated Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. So Jesus says, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Then when the temple was destroyed, it kicked off this time of devastation for Israel. Economic collapse, famine, families torn apart. So as we look at this, we see that first century context. That Jesus is likely not referring here to the second coming as we know it. He's describing the coming of a collapse of a temple, of everything they held dear. But think about this. On a deeper level, it is about his second coming. This seems to be a consistent theme when it comes to cataclysmic events in the Bible, that these events show us God is the only one we can trust. Nothing else will last. Even good things will not last. God is the only one who will last in the end. This is true of all kinds of mini apocalypses in our lives. And in the end, all the things we often believe we can trust will be revealed for what they are. Some things that are harmful, broken, and dark. Some things which are good and even part of God's good world, but they're not the ultimate thing. So it raises the question for us, what do you do when the whole world comes crashing down? Through the fall of the temple, Israel would see that it was Jesus, not the temple, who was God's true representative. The temple no longer could stand in the place of Jesus. 
It was ordained by God. It had been used for all sorts of of good things and wonderful things, and, and God's presence was with them, but also in recent years had been used for all sorts of broken purposes for, by a few leaders in the community. It had become a symbol of national pride. It had become a way of separating us versus them. The good, God-designed thing had become an anti-gospel thing. When good things become the point, they can become an idol for us, and they can become warped away from their goodness. But the good news of Advent is something better is coming. In fact, the best thing is coming. Look, God is doing a new thing, and he invites us to participate in that new thing here and now. Jesus then describes this as the time when the branches of a tree become tender and leaves prepare to come out. My friend, Father Paul Paino, drew my attention to the word tender here as Jesus' description of a tree that's vulnerable, that is prepared to grow leaves. The devastation they're about to experience, the people in the first century, is difficult, it's, it's, uh, but it's not the end. Vulnerability is actually the beginning of something better. What if we allowed our vulnerable places and our difficult experiences to remind us of the hope that we have? the one who will remain. Tenderness is not the end, it is the beginning. The temple was not only seen as the meeting place between heaven and earth, but it was actually seen as like a replica of heaven and earth itself. We see this in Psalm 78, that the temple was like this microcosm of all the heavens and all the earth. So to lose the temple was in some sense to lose the world itself and certainly to lose one's connection with God. So think about these people. I've talked about a lot of history here, but think about these people in the first century and what they go through. Think about the devastation of losing everything in which you trusted. Where do we turn now? Gregory the Great, one of the church fathers, points out to us that the heavens and the earth seem like the thing that could never go away. It's everything. And there are particular things in our lives today that feel like everything in our given moment. By contrast, words, they're nothing. Like I could say one thing today and nobody listens to me. Those words are gone, right, forever. They're fleeting. They're spoken and they're just gone. Well, in Jesus' description, he gives a, a reversal. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. His words, the words of Jesus, are more real and true and lasting than anything else, than heaven and earth themselves. Now, many of you, and I know some of your stories, many of you have experienced times of great shaking in your life. The loss of relationships, of loved ones, of jobs. You've left cities behind and comfort of home. Some of you have experienced great transitions in your faith and your church life, which just feels rocking and shaking. Now, most of the pain we experience is not the result of direct judgment of God. No, God is with us in the midst of the loss. And the question then in the midst of our pain is in whom can we trust and where is our hope? I'll close with this. What are the things in our lives that are not ultimate, but we try to make them ultimate? They become the primary thing we're chasing. 
Two Fridays ago was Black Friday. That's what, what it's often called. Um, it's an odd time. Shane Claiborne summed it up this way. On Thanksgiving, we give thanks for all the things we have. And the next day, we trample each other trying to get more. In the midst of such a world, my friend Ian Simpkins reminds us, you are not one purchase away from happiness. You're not one purchase away from happiness. There is such a temptation in our world that if we just get enough, or if we can make this event special enough, or we have this experience enough, that's the thing in which we trust. We may never say that. That sounds silly to even hear it, but it is often our temptation. So for those of us facing all sorts of interruptions, our calling is to allow this time to be a moment of recognition. I can't trust in any of that. God is my hope. Think about the world right now. We live in a world of incredible turmoil, two brutal wars, a polarized government, two very disliked presidential candidates. And I know it's pretty popular among Christians to look at all the brokenness in our world and conclude all this turmoil means Jesus is coming back soon. Have you heard this? And that's, of course, possible. But think about this. When Jesus returns, it's going to be a beautiful thing, <laughs> right? The brokenness in our world is actually a sign we're still waiting, right? Those in recovery know that, unfortunately, it's often only when we come to the end of our rope that we turn to God. Friends and family can't make someone who is addicted change until that person realizes the fruitlessness and pain of their addiction. So think about all the culture war issues we face today will one day cease. Our financial world will not be able to stand in the end. Additionally, the approval of others around us is ultimately not going to matter in the end. Are we then to say none of that matters? Well, no. There are some, though some of our cultural fights are downright silly, some of our cultural conversations are important, and they impact those most vulnerable in our midst. But still, we have to ask, what is it we long for? What do we anticipate? Is there something more than what we're facing right now? Are we willing to allow Jesus to challenge our expectations? What if God doesn't intervene in the way or the time or the place we thought he would? Can we still trust him and anticipate the good? We're not to look at the destruction in our world and just sit on our hands. Expectation doesn't mean just sit around and wait. We're to live what we hope for, to be the change. If Christ is coming again, let us live that way now. By our actions and our lives, we anticipate his coming. We are the people of the rumor. We live that future world here and now. So may we be a people of hope, not a superficial hope where we long for a fulfillment to our earthly expectations, but a deeper hope, a hope that recognizes the darkness and filthiness of our world and our lives, and yet knows that God has always been the one who shows up. Amen.